all of us, I think, are prone, maybe because it's simply human nature, to embark upon a new year by making resolutions. Now, I want you to be honest, because I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, even in your heart, even if you've not told another living soul, you've made some sort of new desire, new commitment, new resolve about something in your life that you want to see change in the year 2000? All right, now, I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have done that? All right, I believe everybody has done that. Shame on you who did not raise your hand. I believe that every one of us has said to ourselves, in our heart of hearts, as we would say, there's something about my life that I want to see the Lord change in the year 2000. It could be something with regard to your character. It could, could, be, uh, could be something with regard to your uh, physical habits, whether it's exercise or eating or whatever it may be. No doubt every one of us has said in our minds, we want to change something as we embark on a new year. I think that's very natural. I have said that to myself in my own heart. I want to make a new resolve in this area or that area. Indeed, even last year at this time, I presented a message uh, to you being challenged by Jonathan Edwards, the pastor and preacher of old, about the resolutions that he had throughout his life. I think that's very, very natural. And with regard to that, I think there is in the heart and mind of a Christian a must-resolve, a resolve that every one of us should make regarding our Christian life. There are probably a number of them, but the one that comes to my mind to the forefront, to the pinnacle, would be the idea of humility. Humility. seems to me that that particular virtue is so necessary and so crucial that it would be at the top of all of our lists as to what we would want the Lord to change about us in the year 2000. And I have thought much about my life and tried to survey my life and do a spiritual inventory of my heart and my attitudes and my thinking, and it seems to me that that is at the top of my list. So if you'll bear with me, even if that's not at the top of yours, I want to talk this morning about humility. And I want to talk about humility from the text of Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Now, I realize that the title of this message that I'm going to bring to you is, Who is the Greatest in the Kingdom? But I would dare say that the answer to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, is directly proportional to those who are the most humble. It seems to me that the person who is taking their resolve in the year 2000 to be more humble will be those who are growing and maturing so as to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, I believe this particular text of Mark 10 is so important, so crucial, and I affirm what other Bible teachers and writers and commentators say about this very text of Scripture. You know that they say that this is actually the most crucial, the most important text in all of Mark's gospel. 
And believe it or not, we have actually arrived there. This particular portion of God's Word in Mark's Gospel is really the sum and substance of all that Mark has been endeavoring to say or will say. This is the fulcrum. This is the balance of all that he has said and will say. And because this is so important, and because this particular passage, including verse 45, which often is used as the very theme verse of Mark's Gospel, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the verse that is most often quoted when people are asked to give the theme of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, if you were to ask Tim Finn on his ordination examination, what is the theme verse for the Gospel of Mark? This is the one he's going to give, because that's the right answer. Aren't you, Tim? Yes, thank you. And because this text is so important, I have actually suspended this evening's message in the Defending Your Faith series so that we can do a part two, because I can't say all that's in my heart in a part one this morning. And it is because this text is absolutely filled with truth. Truth about not only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but the truth about humility. And I want to introduce it to you this morning and then finish it up tonight. But I want to do so in a way that's a little bit different. I want to do an outline that I'll actually change up for this evening. The outline that I want you to have in your minds this morning is a threefold outline regarding humility. I believe that there is a principle about humility in verses 32 to 34. I believe there's another principle about humility in verses 35 to 40. And I believe there's a third principle here about humility in verses 41 to 45, and I want to give them to you this morning. Let me give you the first principle about humility that I see implicit in this text. They're all easy for you to remember. In fact, I trust that you as I would be able to remember these for the rest of our lives. Principle number one, humility is the prelude to suffering and glory. Humility is the prelude to suffering and glory. Let me read verses 32 to 34 for you. Mark 10 says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, if you're like me, when you first read that, you might question yourself and say, how does that relate to humility? Well, I believe the answer is implicit in this text, and it is as follows. Jesus Christ, who is the one both speaking and the one for whom this text 
is meant is saying that the destiny of his life as a, as a setting of his face, as a flint toward Jerusalem, unmovable, irretractable, is going to go there, and as he goes there, he's going to be delivered to the chief priest and the scribe, to be condemned to death, to be handed over then to the Gentiles, to be mocked and spat upon and scourged and ultimately killed. The thing that is so amazing to me about this with regard to humility is the fact that the very hands that are going to wrap around his wrist, his wrist and his neck, the very hands that will take a crown of thorns and place it upon his forehead by jamming it into that forehead so that much blood is flowing, the very hands that will take the hammers and will nail the nails into his hands and his feet, the very hands who will take a spear and thrust it into his side are the very hands that Jesus Christ, as God, has created. Isn't it amazing? That the God of the universe, God of very God, as theologians say, the essence of deity, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who has created the entire world, would undergo at the hands that he himself has created much suffering. It's amazing to me that Christ would submit himself to such a thing. But what that proves to me, and it proves to the world, even if they choose to reject it, is that Jesus Christ is the essence of humility. In fact, doesn't Matthew eleven twenty nine, by Jesus' own words, say this? That if you were to come to me, I realize that your yoke is heavy. I realize that you are heavy laden, downtrodden, downcast. But if you were to come to me, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Only the essence of a humble man could say about himself, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And not just say it, but to live it out by being the creator of the world and yet creating hands who will ultimately put him to death. Yes, it is true that Moses wrote the words that he was the most humble man on the earth at that time in which he lived and wrote that Moses never died for anyone, nor could he do so. Jesus Christ is the only one who is the creator of the world and who created men and women who ultimately were used in putting that same Christ to death. That, my friends, it's a submission in humility like no other. And that's why I say, by way of a, an implicit spiritual principle in this text, humility is a prelude to suffering and glory. You say, what is the humility that is listed here? It is as I just said. Jesus Christ could have rejected these things as the creator of the world, as the sovereign of the skies. He could have said, no, no. 
They are wicked, and they are vengeful, and they are disobedient, and they shall die in their sin. But he didn't do that. He submitted himself to the Father's plan in great humility. He has already said over and over again and will yet say again and again, I am submitting myself to the Father's plan. I am doing what he's asked of me. I want to pursue his will and no other. And here, with prophetic insight, he says, this is what is going to happen to me. And in humility, he describes the suffering. I'm going to be mocked and spat upon and scourged and ultimately killed. And that's a suffering like none of us have ever suffered, nor will we ever suffer. Why? Well, if we suffer even at death, our suffering is not like his suffering because he never yielded in any temptation to any thoughts about that suffering with anything other than the most godly, righteous, perfect thoughts. Which means that he suffered to the ultimate end the ultimate brunt of suffering was on the person of Christ because he never yielded to any temptation about that suffering, which means he endured it to the very end. Sinners against himself. Which shows me the great humility about his life. You say, well, okay, that's, that's a humble man. I see that. Yes, I affirm that. And I see the suffering. But where's the glory? If you tell me that humility is the prelude to suffering and glory, where's the glory? Well, it's right there in verse 34. And three days later, he will rise again. That's the exaltation. That's the glory. That's the Father saying, it is my plan that this man, Jesus, who will die for the sins of many, will ultimately be affirmed as the Savior of the world and will therefore rise again from the dead so that that coronation, that glory, that exaltation could be put on the person of Christ so that he is the one who is affirmed by his rightful title, Lord. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, that when he is coronated, when he is ascended to his Father, having completed the work of redemption that he was set out to do, that was the Father's plan, and when he accomplishes that plan, the response of God the Father is, I coronate you as Lord, and not just a Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, by my own title that has been ascribed to myself. That's glory, my friends. And, by way of application, I might say that if you and I were about to embark upon a new year with a New Year's resolution, the thing that has to be at the top of all of our lists is am I willing to pursue the kind of humility that is spoken about there? You say, well, I can't. I'm not the Son of God. I can't do that. No, but you must, if you are a Christian, submit yourself to whatever the Father's plan is for you as an individual. You see, Christ submitted himself to the plan of God for what God had him do, and yes, it is true that he could prophetically look forward to what that plan was, and he knew what it was, and we don't. But what we must do, like Christ, is submit ourselves to the plan of the Father, whatever that plan may be. Are you willing to do that? Well, the only way that you'd really be willing to do that is if you would say, first and foremost, I am willing 
to be humbled. Because I believe that humility is the prelude to suffering and then glory. In other words, it is the, the first place that I must go to in order for the suffering to come, and then when the suffering has done its perfect work, for the glory to follow. In other words, no humility, no suffering. No suffering, no glory. It's a package deal. One must come, and it is a prelude, and it is humility. And when it comes, and when I embrace it, not reject it, then the suffering will come. And when I embrace the suffering and not reject it, then the glory will follow. You see, it seems as though, myself included, that we want the glory without the suffering. And Jesus so unmistakably says here, this is what is going to happen to me. The very hands that I created will put me to death. He was really giving us a spiritual principle for life. Humility must be an ever-growing reality in our life if suffering and glory is to follow. Second principle. Beginning in verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know now what you are asking. And are you able to drink that drink, that cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or, my, or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The spiritual principle is this. Humility is not only the prelude to suffering and glory, but humility is also the preparation for it. Humility isn't simply the prelude to suffering and glory. It's also the preparation for suffering and glory. What do I mean? Well, look at the text. Here is James and John. Remember I told you last Lord's Day that they had left everything to follow Christ. They left their own father... Zebedee, right in the boat, mending the net, they immediately began to follow Christ at his command to do so. And through the short days that they've been with him, they are now expressing in full declaration what is in their hearts. And they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, apart from what you and I might think is the goodness of man, that appears to me to be fairly proudful. Is it to you? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You say, well, how do you arrive at that? Well, just by the very thing they say next. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. In other words, we're not sure about those other ten guys, but where we want to be is sitting on your right and your left. We want to be, as it were, the three. You in the middle, one on the right, and one on the left. 
Now, that appears to me to be the essence of pride. It doesn't appear to me to be the essence of humility. And Jesus has an interesting, interesting response. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. In other words, we believe that we can endure anything if it means that that glory on your right and your left is to follow. And Jesus answered them and said, look, this is what is going to happen to you. You don't know it prophetically in the future as I do, but I'm telling you right now, you are going to die for me. That is true. You are going to be baptized with the death with which I am baptized. You are going to drink that cup of death that I'm going to drink. But as to whether or not you, James, or you, John, can sit on my right and my left, that's the Father's preparation plan, not mine. That's his to give, not mine. I'm submitting my life to the Father's plan. You must also submit your life to the Father's plan, and I'll tell you what is the Father's plan, not to determine whether or not you two guys are on the throne or not. It is for those to whom it has been prepared. And you know what that means? That means trust. I don't know what the Father's plan is for me. As an individual Christian, do you know what the Father's plan for you is? We often talk about, well, I'm called to this, and I'm supposed to do this, and I believe the future is this. We don't have the foggiest. We don't have the foggiest idea what the plan of God is. In fact, if it were revealed to us in prophetic detail, like Jesus said about his life, we'd all probably be scrambling for the exit. Why? Because the spiritual principle in here is that suffering and glory must be prepared by the essence of humility. I must submit to the Father's plan. I can't just say, look, here's the plan. The plan is for me to sit here and for my brother to sit here and for us to be ushered into your glory. That's the plan. Let's enact that right now. Now, there are some things that have to happen first. And what needs to happen first, and Christ knows this about his own life, and what they don't know about their own life, he just told them, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to be murdered for me. You don't understand that cup. You don't understand that baptism. It's going to come. You said you're able, but you don't have the foggiest idea what that means. And as you grow closer to it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to flee. You're going to walk away. You're going to run away. You're even going to be like Peter. I don't know this man. You're even going to curse and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know this man. I'm not even a part of this apostolic band. That's not me. Where's the exit? Why? Because there was great suffering here. Great suffering. And isn't it true that we often, to our shame, to my shame, when humility is supposed to be an ever-growing reality in our life, ever-maturing, and that humility, as I take steps toward it, brings me suffering. And I say, wait, I didn't bargain for that part of it. I mean, I, I want to be humble, yes, but on my terms. And if you're asking me to be involved in some glory, some exaltation, I'll sign up for that. But if you're going to tell me something's in the middle called suffering, I didn't bargain for that. That hurts. Oh, look, I can take a little bit of it. 
I mean, I can go through some pain. I, I know the principle of no pain, no gain. But, but if you're telling me that, that I'm going to drink a cup and be baptized with a baptism unto death, no, I don't want that. I want the glory. If you'll just promise me, Jesus, that I can be on the left and my brother can be on the right, then we're able. And they forgot the preparation. And what's the preparation? Don't take me wrong here. It's preparation eight. Preparation humility. That's the key. That is the key to the Christian life. Preparation eight is the is the thing that brings me to the place of understanding and embracing the very suffering that is going to come my way as a Christian. Remember I said to you last week, Paul said to Timothy, you know this, guilt-edge guarantee, you live godly in Christ Jesus and you will suffer persecution. It's going to happen. Now in our Western context, we don't always understand that. We have freedom of worship, freedom of expression, freedom to speak our minds, freedom to read a Bible, freedom for me to advertise a particular study Bible, freedom of you to have the money to go buy such a Bible, freedom of so many things. I think sometimes we look at all the freedoms we have and we assume it's the glory. And somehow the suffering is not along the grid of our life. But what we can see unmistakably here is that there is a preparation and that preparation is given by the Father alone and that preparation is for the purpose of designing our lives to embrace the suffering, not to reject it. And it's designed for us through the suffering to prepare us for the glory. No suffering, no glory. It's as clear as Jesus saying to James and John, men, you don't know about your future. This is what's going to happen. But apart from your knowledge of that, I want you to know this. No suffering, no glory. You want to be sitting on my right and my left, you must submit in humility to the Father's plan, and that humility will bring you to the place of suffering, but that suffering will be the plan of the Father to mold you and shape you and fashion you into the very image of Jesus Christ, and that very image will bring you to the place of exaltation. Boy, this is rich. This is rich because this is the path. It's almost like the humility is the drive train of a car and it's bringing you inexorably forward to the place of suffering and you know it's out there, but because you know that humility brings that, su that suffering, that preparation is there, you know it, you're being prepared for it, you can embrace it when it comes and when you move through that suffering and you are granted by God's grace the measure of grace to endure it, the suffering will then give way to glory, which is what we all want. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that this is saying that. Well, James says it, James chapter 4. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to what? The humble. You see, God doesn't give grace to the proud. He actually opposes the proud. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 12, 
if someone thinks they're suffering, but they're actually suffering because they're sinning, rather than embracing the suffering as a righteous, godly person, God says, I not only am not going to give you grace, I'm going to chastise you. So we're not, we're not talking about suffering with someone who's sinning. We're talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. And when you do that, God promises grace to you, the humble. He promises me that grace. If I had a New Year's resolution that I wanted to receive grace from God to be a more humble person, do you think God's going to grant that request? That's His will. That's His plan. Do I know what the plan looks like? Do I know when it's going to come? Do I know how much suffering there's going to be? Do I know when the glory is going to come upon me? No. But you know, that's a part of humility. Because I'm saying, I don't know the plan. He's perfect. I'm not. I'll settle for what He wants me to do. I'll trust Him. You say, that's not good enough. I want to know something else. First Peter chapter 5. I want you to turn there because this, this really nails it. This is, uh, the gospel account gives it to us in a shadow. Peter gives it to us in reality. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Oh, this is so good. I leapt for, for joy last night when I was thinking about this. You younger men likewise, 1 Peter 5, 5, be subject to your elders. And then he says, and all of you, not just the young men, all of you, don't miss these words. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And not only that, verse 6, Therefore, for the very purpose of what humility brings, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that, for the very purpose that, He may exalt you at the proper time. And that is repeated in the Old and New Testament. That's just one passage, and that's just one way of saying it. It is throughout the book. It tells us humility is the virtue that we must have in our lives in ever-growing fashion, and that humility brings us to a place of suffering. It's a guilt-edged guarantee of the Christian life. But once that suffering has done its perfect work, James 1, going through those trials, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, then you will be exalted at the proper time. When is that exaltation? Well, it is not when I say, here's what I want you, Jesus, to do for me. I want to sit on your left or your right, and I want you to make it happen in the glory. No. What these guys needed to learn and what we need to learn, they're blockheads, we're blockheads. Let's face it. Let's just be honest. I mean, I, I think to myself sometimes, oh, when are you going to understand these things? When are you going to come to the place where you see these things work out in the day-to-day -day of your life. Humility is what you must be growing in so that the suffering, when it comes, can be understood by you as to why it's coming, what its work is, what is the plan. Even if I don't understand it to the fullness of its plan, I'm not supposed to. I'm not God. I'm not the Father. I don't know the fullness of the plan. But I know that when I experience it, it's part of the plan and I trust Him so that when that plan has been brought to fruition, I am going to be in glory. Exalted at the proper time. So, humility is the prelude. It happens on the front end to suffering and glory. And it's also the preparation time throughout the suffering and the glory. And then thirdly, according to verses 41 to 45, it is the pinnacle to suffering and glory. Hearing this, Hearing this, the ten began to be indignant 
with James and John. That's not hard to figure out why, is it? Calling them to himself. He called the whole crew to himself, and Jesus said to them, I'm going I'm I'm to tell you about this principle of humility, suffering, and glory in absolute explicit detail, and here it is. Guys, listen up. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. That is, the leaders lorded over those they're leading. And their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, read in there, they exercise capricious and arbitrary and heavy-hearted, heavy-handed kind of authority over those that they're leading. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great, great in the kingdom, among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slain of all. That's just as he said before. Just a couple of words before this. Whoever is first shall be last, and whoever is last shall be first. Whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be first, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a servant of slain. That's humility. That is humility. Because don't you know that some of the people in this context who would band together in a local church, some of them would be high up on the socioeconomic ladder, and some of them would be real low on the socioeconomic level, and then those who are on the low end of the, the socioeconomic totem pole would rise in humility to be the leaders over those who are actually the leaders probably in that social context. And the ones who are leading can't lord it over those because they say, look, you lead me out in the society, but I'm going to lead you in the church, and this is the way we're going to go, and that leadership is capricious and arbitrary and harsh. And it's also that that one who's high in the socioeconomic level, he doesn't come into the church and sees a slave or a servant who's over him, and he says, look, I'm over you out there. You're not going to do that to me in here. No. You have those at the top and you have those on the bottom and they all work together. We all go in together. We're all the same. If you want to be great, you have to be the servant. If you want to be a servant, that's the only way to greatness. Humility, I submit to you, is the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle the suffering and glory. Because once you understand the suffering for what it really is, it takes you to the very zenith of service. You know, we talk about people that say, you know, I just want to serve. I just want to be a, a slave to people. I just want to, I just want to minister to people. Jesus says, you want to be that way? If that's your true heart, then you are becoming a humble man or woman. And when you become humble like that, you will be exalted at the proper time. And maybe some of that exaltation will happen now. Maybe someone will be lost into a place of greater service, of greater intimacy with Christ, of greater treasure, of greater reward, even in this life and with an even greater reward in the life to come. And it was as though maybe these disciples, and certainly the ten indignant ones, James and John, were saying, yeah, well, that's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to say because you're the rabbi. You're the guy who's out front walking ahead of us. Everybody looks at you and says, he's the leader. That's easy for you to, you know, all leaders say it's easy uh, to allow humility to overtake you so that you can be humble and a servant and a slave. It's easy for a leader to say that because he's in front. Jesus says, here's my attitude. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give 
his life ransom. Amen. We're right back where we started. As the divine Son of God, he had, every, he had every prerogative to say no to this process, no to the suffering, grabbing the exaltation, if that's what he was after. He said, no, even the Son of Man, even I, as the leader, as the one chosen by the Father to execute the plan of redemption, even I did not come to be served. And you know what he did in that service, not only with his teaching, although that's sometimes what people do not readily recognize as service, because they think as a leader that's what he's supposed to do, he's leading out, how can that really be looked upon as humble service that it is? But he did more than that, even to the point of washing their feet. The most abject, the most lowly kind of service, even, even disciples of a rabbi were unwilling to wash the feet of people around them. It was only reserved for the most lowly servant who stood by the door. When they came off the dusty road and they came in the house, he had the bowl ready with the towel, and they stepped their feet into that bowl to, to make their feet wet, and then he would take that towel and he would rub their feet and clean their feet for them. Only the lowliest servant would do that. That's why John the Baptist said when Christ came to be baptized by him, I am not even worthy to untie the thong of your sandal. In other words, I'm not just a disciple of you. That's true about me, and I'm not worthy to do this. I'm not even worthy to be a servant in the lowliest position to wash your feet. In fact, I'm so unworthy of you, I'm not even worthy to be the man who unties the thong of your sandal. I'm that unworthy of you. That's why Jesus said about John the Baptist, he was decreasing and Christ was increasing in his life. That's why he said about John the Baptist, he's the greatest born among women. Because he had that kind of humility. And boy, did John the Baptist suffer. And in his case, he suffered with the giving of his own head, literally. You think John the Baptist is at a point right now of exaltation somewhere in the heaven of heaven? Oh, Brothers and sisters, this is an opportunity for us to look at this text and see our path. It's right ahead of us. Whatever it may be, and whatever form and fashion it takes, we don't know. That's reserved for the Father and His plan alone. But what we do know is if we embrace that and we take the drive train of humility and it pushes us by prelude, preparation, and pinnacle right through suffering to the place of ultimate glory. And maybe even glory here. a great text. Boy, what a, what a wonderful text. No wonder Bible teachers say this is the fulcrum. Once you come back tonight, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is so, so crucial. I confess to you, Father, I, I've been in need of humility, brokenness, and contrition, and the more it seems I come closer to you, the more it appears I'm so much more farther away. Lord, it seems that the closer I come to the light, the more my sin is exposed. The more I attempt to be humble, the more suffering there seems to be. And I... I want to rejoice in that. I don't want to kick against it. I don't want to reject it. I want to rejoice in it. 
I want to embrace it because I know that that is your path that ultimately brings me to be exalted at the proper time. Oh Lord, thank you for this tremendous look at the person of Christ and what he endured as the Creator himself at the hands of those who were created at our hands. Our hands put him on the cross. Our sin put him there. And yet with a with a perfect humility. He responded to the suffering and you raised him from the dead. You exalted him at the proper time. I pray that you would do that in the life of our congregation, each and every person. Thank you for bringing this text to us. For bringing our lives and placing it on the anvil of this truth and hammering on us so that through this suffering we might be glorified. We pray that you bring it to pass, trusting in your plan and whatever form and shape it takes. And we pray we not kick against it, but embrace it for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.